Hello, church leaders and friends. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Effective Church Leaders Podcast. We are your hosts, Becky and Carrie Holton, and today we are continuing our series on how to read biblical letters. If you missed our last two podcasts, that were number 103 and number 104, we talked about the occasional or situational nature of the New Testament letters. Yes, we did. And by the way, honey, did you know that the letters of the New Testament form the majority of our New Testament books? Did you know that? We got some trivia coming, I can already tell. (laughs) (laughs) Well, of the 27 New Testament books, all but six of them are letters. Isn't that interesting? I'd never thought about it that way. Yeah, so we have 13 letters written by Paul, 14 if you count Hebrews, one written by James, two by Peter, one by Jude, and three by John. So when we talk about how to interpret the New Testament letters, we're talking about uh, the bulk of the New Testament. I I appreciate that trivia, actually. That kind of puts it in a little bit of a different context for us. And as we discussed in our last episode, the letters of the New Testament are situation-specific. They were written to a specific church or group of churches or to specific individuals, and they were written to address a specific situation, problem, or series of questions from their original readers. Yeah, and what that means is that they were not written to us. We can learn from them because they were written for our learning and our benefit, but they were not written to us. And by the way, when we think about it, even the circular letters were not written to us, but were written to address a specific situation. So define again what you mean by circular letter. Okay, well, yeah, a circular letter. Uh, Take Ephesians, for example. Most of our English translations will say in the greeting, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. That's chapter 1, verse 1. But some of the oldest Greek manuscripts of this letter omit the words in Ephesus. So this letter may have been written to the churches that lay in a circuit in Asia Minor. Paul may have intended for this letter to go from the church in Ephesus to Laodicea, then to Colossae and to Philadelphia, and so forth. He may have intended for all the churches in this region to read this letter. You know, back in the day, we used to call those round robin letters. Yeah. When there was a group of maybe um, college roommates, my mom used to do that. Her college roommates, they all did a round robin letter, and one would write it and then send it on, and it just would go in a circle. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, in the day of emails, that's a really foreign term. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, you know, there's there's another verse in Colossians that seems to uh, talk about these encyclical letters or these round-robin letters, as you call them. Mm-hmm. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 16. There, Paul writes, when this letter has been read among you, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you read also the letter from Laodicea, which, by the way, we don't seem to have today, mm-hmm. the letter that was written to the Laodiceans. But and again, these letters were intended to be read by more than one church. Right. So even these letters who may have been intended for more than one church call for a different kind of reading than we normally give them, if you think about it. Even they are situation-specific to a particular time and region. Right. Even in those letters, Paul or whoever the author is addressing a specific situation in those churches. And when you think about it, hun. The situation that he addresses in the letters may have been descriptive of more than one church in the region and Mm -hmm. at that particular time. So why wouldn't what he says in that letter apply to several 
churches in that particular region. Right. And again, this is a question we started to address in our last podcast, but let's ask it again. Why is it important for us to be aware of the situation specific nature of the New Testament letters? Yeah. I mean, that's a really important Good question. question. Good question. I think I would suggest, first of all, that, that one reason is that we should not treat these letters as if they were timeless theological treatises. And you know, we often do that. Mm-hmm, we do. We often look to the letters as sources of doctrine or sources of teaching, letters that were written to explain doctrine or explain teaching, rather than as documents that just offered practical advice for a certain situation or a certain circumstance. In other words, we should not look to them as giving us timeless, universal, doctrinal positions. Right. Uh, Paul would not have seen the letters that way himself. He would have seen the letters as offering counsel to specific audiences in specific situations. Yeah. And, you know, this does not mean that there are no doctrinal positions taken in the letters. Of course, there are. Absolutely. I mean, the authors would have shared sound doctrine, but they would have shared it in the letters for the service of the church or in the service of the church. They would have used sound teaching in the service of a particular need or a particular problem or a particular situation that they saw in the churches to whom they were writing. But they would not have seen the letters as just pure doctrinal treatises. Rather, they would have seen them as offering specific advice for specific situations. And when you think about it, this is the way we operate every day. You know, the counsel we give may differ depending on whom we're talking to or when we're talking to Mm -hmm. them. You know, if someone asks for your advice, you need to know their specific situation before offering it. And depending on the situation, your specific counsel might be one thing or another. And I think parents understand this very well, because if their children come to them asking for advice, parents will take into consideration who's asking for that advice and the situation the child is in before offering counsel, and a few other factors, you might not give the same advice either to each of your children because each one of them is different, and each one may be in a different circumstance. I think that's a good point, Ben. I mean, that's just a rule of thumb we don't think about. Yeah, counsel will differ. Let me offer another reason that I think we need to be aware of the situation-specific nature of the New Testament letters. Uh, And this second reason is that We open ourselves to the possibility of misconstruing the conversation if we are not aware of their situation-specific nature. Right. You know, as we said in the last week's episode, and maybe the one before that even, reading the letters is like listening to one end of a telephone conversation. We only have one side of that conversation if we don't know the questions that were asked or the situation that called for a response from the author, we can easily misinterpret and then misapply the text. Right. And so our challenge when reading the letters is to reconstruct the original situation that called for the writing of the letter. And boy, that one can often be really tricky. But the reason it is important to reconstruct the original situation as much as we can is that if our situation is unlike theirs, we can easily misapply what was written. And so we're stepping into a place of ethics and integrity. 
Yes, yes. And you know, honey, I think we do tend to assume. We just assume naturally that our situation is like theirs. I think we want to because we're looking for direction. Well, good. I don't think that we're being intentionally misguided. I just think we're really looking for direction, and that's the straightest line from A to B, you know. I think so, but I think we probably ought to acknowledge that we do tend to open the letters and then pull out a verse and then apply it directly to our situation. We do. We just tend to jump in and apply a text without even asking if our situation is like that of the first readers. And by the way, they were the ones to whom the letter was written. But we can't do that if our situation is different. We can't assume that whatever Paul wrote to the church in Corinth or to Timothy, for example, he would write to us. He may have responded differently to our situation. Right. So when we read the letters, we should first do the necessary background work on the original recipients and the region where they lived, and then say, here's our best attempt to understand what is going on there. And last week we mentioned that we often read the letters as if they, you know, they were timeless prescriptions for Christians and churches of all time. And our default tends to be that whatever is written there is timeless and universal. I think you're exactly right about that. We we just default to that, don't we? And maybe this is where we say we are not saying scriptures is not inspired. You know, we're not saying any of that and that it was written maybe not to us, but certainly for us as we keep saying But it's how we read it is what we're talking about. Right. And I think we should think about this a little bit more deeply because, you know, we're not always consistent, are we? I mean, we tend to look to Scripture as timeless and universal prescriptions for Christians of all time, but we really only do that for certain texts. We don't do that for all the texts. And let me give you an example of what I mean. Okay. Romans chapter 16 and verse 16. In that passage, Paul writes this, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, we don't see that as a timeless prescription, do we? No, we don't. Uh, But it is a direct command from an apostle of Jesus Christ, and it's repeated five times in the New Testament. We find it in 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 13 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and 1 Peter chapter 5. Now, why don't we obey this command? COVID. To, <laughs> to greet one another with a holy kiss because we see it as a situation-specific command to people who lived in a particular time and place. But we do see a principle behind the command. Sure. We do get from that the principle that we ought to greet each other in a loving and holy way, even if we have a mask on. Sure. (laughs) No, I'm just throwing COVID in because I think that shows how that verse could be really complicated if we were trying to be straightforward with it, but we're not. Yeah. Well, again, my point is this is a command that we don't we don't practice. We don't do what Paul commands his readers to do. Right. Let's go on to another example. Although it's not from a letter per se, it's from the Gospel of John, chapter 13, which was probably written to a specific group of Christians or to a specific church in the first century. And it's one where after Jesus washed his disciples' feet at the Last Supper with them, he said, If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, 
you also should wash one another's feet. For I have set an example for you that you also should do as I have done to you. Our Lord told us to wash one another's feet. Shouldn't we be doing that? Shouldn't we be obeying that command? And I think, you know, we have to stop and look at that. First, he didn't tell us to do that. He told the 12 to do that. And second, that must surely be a situation-specific command to people who wore sandals. And they walked dusty and muddy roads and whose culture practiced foot washing before entering a home. Our culture does not practice foot washing, but there is certainly a large and important principle that must be applied from these verses. Yes. And that principle is we should be servants of one another, even if it means doing the menial tasks such as washing feet, cleaning bathrooms, doing laundry. Mm-hmm. That's the principle yep. that must be applied. Very good. Uh, let me give you another example. And uh, by the way, I want to preface the next example or two by saying that uh, we're going to be talking about some more controversial scriptures now. I don't want our listeners to think that we have a corner on the market of understanding of the following verses. I mean, no, there, we don't. there are good Bible students who see these verses differently. Mm-hmm. So I don't want us to sound... Uh, a, a dogmatic, like we have arrived at a perfect understanding or, of the truth here. No, or prideful. Right. But but let me let me give you another example, and, and I'll admit it's a more controversial one. Okay. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul instructs Christian women to wear a veil when they are praying or prophesying. I think that's verse 6. Now, most of us believe that was a command to the Christian women in Corinth, which would not pertain to Christian women today. Right. Now, you will find godly women, sincere Christian women, who feel they need to wear a hat or a veil over their heads even today because this verse commands it. But mm-hmm. but don't you think it's true that most Christian women don't feel this command is for them today? Right. 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 And by the way, we don't really know with certainty the situation that is called for in this response from the Apostle Paul. Were women wanting to throw off the veil as a sign of rebellion against their husbands or their culture? Or were there men who were wanting the women to throw aside the culturally accepted practice of wearing a veil when they prayed or prophesied in the assembly? We don't really know, and that alone should make us a bit cautious to apply this directive to our own lives, I think. I think that's a good point. There's so much here we don't know. Right. So much we don't know. But back to our point. We don't see 1 Corinthians 11 in verse 6 as a timeless and universal command. Right. We see it as situation-specific to the Corinthian women in the first century. But when we move just three chapters later in 1 Corinthians 14.34, we say, now here is a timeless and universal command. And, of course, that's the passage where Paul writes that women should be silent in the churches, that they are not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate, as even the law also says. Now, that's a problematic passage for sure. Is Paul giving this command to all women for all time, or to just certain women in the Corinthian church? Verse 35 states that if those women desire to know anything, they should ask their husbands at home. So, Does this command only apply to married women 
and not to single women? Mm -hmm. And what is the meaning of the words, as the law also says? Which law is Paul talking about? Old Testament law? Roman Empire law? The laws in Corinth? It's just hard to know. It really is. A lot of confusing Problematic passage. Difficult to understand. But our point is that we need to be careful when we say that 1 Corinthians 11.6 is situation specific, but then in that same context, 1 Corinthians 14.34 is timeless, a command for women of all time. I think we probably need to give these passages more thought, more consideration, since they are found in the letters that are, after all, situation-specific by their very nature. Right, and I think we really do need to be consistent. That's just going to require careful study and very careful prayer. And, you know, maybe we all do need to step back and give some of these passages a lot more thought and study. I agree. I agree. I think they deserve it. And let me mention just one further example before we wrap this uh, podcast episode up. Let's return to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9. You know, we've just about worn out this passage in the last several podcasts, haven't we? We have. We brought that, that one up several times. <laughs> yes, we have. Uh, but as our listeners know, in that passage, Paul writes that the women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing, uh, not with their hair braided or with gold, pearls, or expensive clothes. Now, we said in our last two podcasts that this is not a timeless universal prohibition. At least that's what we believe. We believe that it is situation specific. And I really believe most of our listeners would probably agree with that. Right. Paul is directing his prohibition to a specific group of women. Who were they? Well, we're not sure. Perhaps they were former priestesses of the Temple of Artemis who had become Christians but were still dressing as an idol-worshiping priestess would dress. Or, perhaps in that culture, Paul knows that women who dressed that way would not make the gospel of Jesus attractive to others. Well, we just aren't sure who those women were. And again, we aren't sure what the situation was that Paul is addressing. But we don't see this passage as timeless, as evidenced by the fact that Christian women today braid their hair, wear gold, and wear pearls. Okay, that's First First Timothy 2 and verse 9. Okay. But then we go just three verses later, and we say, now this verse is timeless. Women are not permitted to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. That's verse 12. What is there in this text, First Timothy 2 and verse 12, that makes us think that this is a timeless universal command, that it's a prohibition for women of all time. Well, I do think it sounds like an absolute, you know, when it says, I permit no woman to teach or have authority over a man. That kind of sounds like an absolute timeless universal prohibition. Well, it sounds timeless, and that may be because that's the way we've always read it in our lives. Right. Uh, But what if it's not? What if it's not? I mean, what if Paul is giving this prohibition to the very same women he addressed in verse 9, the women who are not to braid their hair and wear golden pearls? What if 1 Timothy 2.12 is also situation-specific? What if this prohibition only applies to a group of women Paul had in mind in the city of Ephesus? You know, I think this discussion should only encourage us 
to try to not be dogmatic about what we think this verse teaches. I think it should really encourage us to study these texts very deeply and try to understand them as best we can because they are complex and they're complicated and we don't want to rush to an easy interpretation and be irresponsible. Yeah, I think so too. Any closing thoughts? Uh, why do I ask that? Any, any closing <laughs> thoughts? Well, <laughs> just a few. And again, I'm, I want to tie into some things you just now said. I think we need to remember that Bible study is a lifelong process. Isn't that the truth? Yeah, it's I a mean, lifelong process. I mean, the older process. I get, the more I realize I don't know and how much more I need to study. Yes, yes. I think we need to realize, too, that, that uh, well, we should never feel like we have arrived at our knowledge of the truth. I, I, I mean, there are, there are some truths, of course, that we should be able to understand and say, I know what that means. Right. I, I understand what that means there are some and things I can apply it. Crystal clear. Some things are crystal clear, but there are some texts in the scripture that are not so crystal clear. Mm-hmm. Not so easy to understand. Well, even if the apostle says, you know, some of the things he writes are kind of hard to understand, it's going to be for us too. We should pause when we read Mm -hmm. verses like that. We should never reach the point where we think we perfectly understand everything that's in the Bible, that we can't learn anything new. I think we should be open-minded and be willing to enter dialogue with others who, by the way, are just as sincere as we are in their desire to please God, to know his will, and to do his will. And there is room for all of us to become better Bible students, to grow in our understanding of this inspired book. And I know our listeners feel the same way about this. Yes. I mean, I'm not sharing anything new that they don't know. Or they wouldn't be listening. Right. You know, because we're all just wanting to do what God wants us to do because we love him and we're following him and we are just trying to please him and understand what he's saying. And that motivation and intention is goes a long way, I think. But that also means we need to be very careful about how we interpret scripture. Yes. We don't want to misinterpret it. We don't want to twist it. Mm-hmm. Very important. Well, you know how infuriating it is when someone takes something that you've said or I've said and puts a little spin on it and it comes out totally the opposite. Mm-hmm. And um, we we all know how hurtful and hard that is when that happens. And that's the absolute last thing I want to do to God. Yes. And besides that, we can hurt people by misinterpreting Scripture. uh, Absolutely. Well, with that, let's, let's sign off for today. What do you say? Sounds good. And listeners, we welcome your questions and your comments. So please don't hesitate to send them our way. And you can send them to hello at EffectiveChurchLeaders.com. And friends, as a way of reminder, we exist to support church and ministry leaders. Please let us know how we may support you in the most important work you are doing. And until next time, God bless you.